This is an ABC podcast. Well, good morning this Christmas morning and welcome back to RN and Radio Australia across the Pacific. My name's Meredith Way. I hope you're doing well. I'm here to take the baton from Siobhan Murren and Rowan Salmond. And how about those carols? Joy to the world. Well, there's a lot to look forward to in the next hour or so, including a conversation with James Bhagwan. He's the spokesperson for the Pacific Conference of Churches. The PCC is one of the region's largest non-government organisations, and it advocates for Pacific communities on everything from climate change to the welfare of migrant workers. Padre James will join me a bit later to tell us more about that, to share a thought on Christmas and explain why he's become a fan of stand-up paddleboarding. This hour, we'll also cast our minds back to the first few centuries of the Common Era to explore the melting pot of Jewish, Greco-Roman and early Christian ideas about divinity. Of course, an idea of Jesus as divine is part of what Christians celebrate at Christmas. But what did it mean to be called a god in the time of Jesus? For example, can Jesus be understood as a kind of Jewish Heracles? First, though, a dash of wonder to get us started this hour, thanks to Dr Jennifer Wiseman, who's one of the world's leading astrophysicists. I think I've always been intrigued by the natural world. I grew up on a farm in a rural area of the central part of the United States in the state of Arkansas in the Ozark Mountains, which are really like like hills. Um, hmm. But uh, we like to boast that they're, they used to be taller than the Rocky Mountains, but they've eroded over long periods of time. <laughs> Nevertheless, being in that beautiful natural area made me always just notice the natural world around me. I, I loved uh, forests. I loved uh, wandering around in meadows and along streams. We had several lakes in the area, so I spent most of my summers you know, swimming and and wildlife and all kinds of animals. We had our own pets and we had livestock and lots of wildlife. I think just being in that environment, I maybe took for granted the fact that everywhere I looked, I could see something of nature and it changes every day as the seasons come and go. So I think it was that... Um, that uh, blessing of being exposed to the beauty and functioning natural world around me, that was my first sense of, of I would call it now, you know, just wonder and, and curiosity and, and appreciation. And then years later, that led to a more formal study of, of the natural world um, in science. Mm. Did that lead you outdoors at night? It did. Uh, I I loved, and I still do, walking around and outside at night. And because we lived out in the country in a dark and safe area, it was quite natural to go on evening walks up our little country lane. My parents and I would often end the day that way by going on a little family walk with our dogs. And I was curious about what I saw in, in the night sky. And I like to imagine what it would be like if I could just blink my eyes and go to one of those star systems I was looking at. And of course, around the time I was a teenager and, and growing up, was there were a lot of uh, new images coming to us from probes that had been sent to the outer solar system, like the Voyager probes mm. that were sending back the first close-up images of some of the outer planets in our solar system and their moons. And I was absolutely fascinated by uh, these exotic worlds and pictures of places like Europa, which is a moon of Jupiter, or um, Titan and Triton and these other moons in the solar system. So I, I love that aspect of humanity, that we were able to build devices that could go places that we ourselves could not go and could take pictures and send back information. I thought that was the greatest thing humans had ever done. I still do. So all of that together, I think, really just kind of made me fascinated by the concept of space exploration. But my, my favorite kind of astronomy to this day is simply looking up with my own eyes, if I can find a dark place, and just looking at the universe um, as I can see it and imagining what, what is out there. I mean, I can, I can hear the thrill that this still holds for you when you speak about it, Jennifer. Those incredible images, you know, the image not just of the planets, but of the pale blue dot that the Voyager space probe sent back to us. Historians of science often talk about this moment as 
quite significant for the way humanity is able to conceive of its own place in such a vast universe. Was that something that you felt conscious of, a sense of your own place, not shifting necessarily, but perhaps changing in light of these images? I think those images had a profound impact um, on everyone who, who looked at them, including myself. And even to this day, as I think about, you know, where I sit on this one particular little planet and, um, and particularly the farm I grew up in, this kind of precious piece of, of earth on, to me on this little planet, but that, you know, as you get far away from it, you see that uh, geographically or, 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 you know, spatially, it's a very small place. And yet so much has happened, you know, so much of human history, the good, the bad, the ugly is all taking place on this tiny little dot. And not just human history, but the, the history of other animals on this planet too. And it does make you think, you know, what, how should we contemplate this? You know, for, for many people, it brings a sense of, of insignificance. Um, mm. And that's, you know, completely understood because in the scale of the size of the galaxy and the universe, our little solar system is very small. Um, and in terms of our time span of, of experiencing life, it's, uh, it's insignificant compared to the time span of the universe. And yet, even that question of significance is a philosophical choice because the other way of looking at it is that the fact that we can be asking these questions, the fact that we can send probes out to take back a, a, a selfie of our own, <laughs> of our own planet, you know, yeah. and, and think about where we fit in the universe, that is in a sense, a, a kind of significance. And, and I think it's a significance given to us, um, that uh, we should be very grateful for. So these are philosophical questions that kind of move beyond the boundaries of what strictly science can address. But I do think that the advances in technology that have given us these new glimpses, both of the universe looking outward and of our home planet looking back, have enriched our philosophical, theological, spiritual, and historical views of ourselves in, in major ways. Hmm. It's interesting to me, like in that very human quest to articulate a sense of meaning or significance or purpose, how prominent the stars have been across many different cultures as a focal point almost for that inquiry. What are your reflections on why that might be? There is something fascinating about stars. And if you can get to a dark place, the, the stars can sometimes fill the sky from horizon to horizon, and you can't help but wonder, you know, what they are. And now we can answer that question scientifically, but I think there's still a, a, a deeper sense of Wow, when I when I think about that stars are actually the factories that create heavier elements. You know, they start with mostly hydrogen, a little helium, um, and create through a fusion process in the core of this pressurized ball of gas, heavier elements that are then eventually dispersed out from the star as it ages and then future stars forming out of this interstellar gas are enriched by these atoms formed in previous generations of stars. And that even allows systems of, of dust and debris to form along with stars around them and planets can form out of this material. So stars are actually essential to the existence of planets and life you know, if you look at your hand right now, there are atoms in your hand that were forged in, in stars beyond our solar system. Hmm. So, you know, we are quite literally connected to the rest of the universe. We're not just observers. And I think, you know, when we talk about significance, it's, it's true that if we think of significance being, you know, where we are in the universe or how long we last, then, then the answer is that we're not significant. 
but I don't, but that's a philosophical question. There are other ways of measuring significance. And, and I think the significance of being um, alive on a planet that supports life and that enables us to actually reflect upon our lives and to even observe the natural world around us and the universe beyond and be curious about that and, and have even the slightest bit of understanding of the history of that universe leading up to ourselves being able to ask these questions, that to me implies great significance. And and uh, and I'm grateful for this, you know. It's not always comfortable because as we contemplate our lives and the universe and the beauty therein, we are also looking around every day as we look at the newspapers and see what is surely evil, you know, uh, um, murders and starvation and cruelties mm. and things mm. that we recognize in this sense. And, and that to me implies that there is something beyond just existence that is behind the fact that we're here and able to answer these questions. And this goes a little bit beyond science, but I do think it implies that we have, um, there is purpose, there is meaning, and there is something we need to think about uh, for how we live our lives here. Just extraordinary, isn't it? Being here together on this tiny planet, contemplating the stars and our own meaning and significance with Dr. Jennifer Wiseman. Jennifer is an astrophysicist who leads the Hubble Telescope Program at NASA, and it's been great to hear from her on this Christmas morning. I'm Meredith Lake, with you for a special broadcast today on RN and Radio Australia. And you know, all this talk about stars reminds me of the carol, the one about the three kings from the east who follow a star to Bethlehem. I'm sure you know it. Star of wonder, star of night, star with royal beauty bright. I'm not going to sing, but have you got it on your Christmas playlist for today? Maybe you've had carols on rotation for weeks already. Well, I suspect my next guest is pretty into carols. He's a lecturer in theology at Ridley College in Melbourne. Dr. Michael Bird is his name and is the author of a new book called Jesus Among the Gods, Early Christology in the Greco-Roman World. Mike, a Merry Christmas to you. It's great to be with you here this morning. And Merry Christmas to you, Meredith, and to all of your listeners. Now, I don't know if you have a strong view on this, but I'm keen to hear it. When is it okay, in your view, to put up the Christmas tree? You know, crack out the carols, lean into the festive season. There are different schools of thought, I know. Did you wait till December, the beginning of Advent, or, you know, did you go, go hard and go early? No, we went out pretty early, I think. First day of Advent, <laughs> that's when the tree goes up and it comes down at the end of Advent on the 6th of January, and anything beyond that is blasphemy. <laughs> Um, well, by Christmas Day, of course, it's open season for carols, Christmas music, all the things. I think even the most grinchy grinch among us can probably admit that. Do you have a favourite carol that you turn to at this time of year? Oh, I have several. I like O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. Oh, yeah. And O Holy Night, sung by Pentatonics. Wow. Okay. Um, I have been thinking, partly because I've been reading your book, Dr. Bird, about the Charles Wesley classic, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, I did hear it recently at a end-of-year school concert, and I was struck by the very dense ideas that are packed into the second stanza of that carol especially. I'm sure you know it. Veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with us to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. And at, at the school concert, Michael, everybody went a bit quiet when we got to that part. Maybe it's a bit obtuse or perhaps a bit overwhelming, depending on your perspective, those lyrics. What do you think? Oh, it could be a bit of both. I mean, the language to some ears may sound a little bit archaic, uh, but even the concepts may not be familiar to people. But it's, a, it's the heart of the Christmas message, the great mystery that God became one of us entering into human life through Mary of Nazareth. The idea is that God is not so 
far removed and the heavens aloof from the muck and mire of human suffering. Rather, Christians proclaim, at Christmas especially, that God became one of us to participate in the human condition and ultimately to redeem us, to rescue people from the things that oppress them, the things that condemn them, and the things that stop us reaching our full human potential as bearers of the divine image. Well, Michael, this idea of a God in human form, of God incarnate, as the carol has it, to even speak like this skates over what might be the elephant in the room here. I mean, the word God, even now, means so many different things to so many different people. I mean, you only need a Christian, a Hindu, and someone who uses God as a profanity in the same room to kind of get get the sense of this. Hmm. Why do you think we need to actually go back and shake out, if you like, the complexity of the term God, even even in that early Christian world? I, I think it's because we've got a very caricatured view of God. I mean, I'll give you an example of that. A friend of mine, Tom Wright, when he was a chaplain at a college at Oxford, he used to meet with all the new incoming students, and the students would meet with him quite awkwardly, and they'd say, you know, it's wonderful to meet with you, you know, Reverend Wright, but you won't be seeing much of me because I don't believe in God. And then my friend Tom would ask them, well, would you describe this God you don't believe in? And they would say things like, oh, well, you know, kind of like a cosmic version of Santa Claus, voice like Morgan Freeman, lives up in the (laughs) heavens somewhere, does the odd occasional miracle for my football team, you know, that kind of thing. And Tom would always turn around and say, well, that's an amazing coincidence. I don't believe in that kind of God either. The Christian idea of God has to be built around the story of Jesus. Once you understand that story, you understand who God is from a Christian perspective. So I guess the problem is we have a caricature or we have an over-familiarity with the concept, and we don't understand how Christians, Muslims, Jews, Hindus, or all sorts of different traditions have represented the divine in their own history and traditions. We assume that the word God is monolithic, and it means the one thing and the same thing across all different cultures, where in reality, that is not the case. Even to speak of a Christian view of God wrapped up with the idea and the story of Jesus, that trying to get to grips with that in itself has been a scholarly enterprise over at least two centuries now, the quest for the historical Jesus going back to the sources and trying to figure out, okay, if we just park all the church stuff for a minute, who are we left with? What do we have? What do we know even about this person that we could then build an idea of God on? I mean, that has been a very fraught and elaborate enterprise, you'd have to say, since, well, the period of the Enlightenment, at least. Yeah, I'd say even goes back even further. I think in the early centuries of the church, people were wanting to know, well, what was Jesus really like? What did he what did he teach and what he what did he actually say? And whether you're dealing with pagan critics of Christianity or, you know, different groups within the church, I think the desire to say, well, who was Jesus really uh, was one of the first impulses for those who encountered the Christian movement. And I guess we just have the same thing today, except, you know, we've been through the Enlightenment, we have a different understanding of historiography, you know, what is real, and we're a little bit more sensitive to how do you how do you extract or how do you separate the faith aspect from the um, historical facts. I think that's kind of what we often want to do. We want to kind of separate faith and facts in the Gospels, which is kind of a difficult task because I tend to think the Gospels are kind of like the colour purple. They're made up of um, a faith perspective. They're made up of certain facts. Where you might say it's like you've got blue and red and the colour purple. Uh, we know they're both in there, but we don't know whether one ends and the other begins. We know purple's made up of red and blue. So how do you actually separate these two things? That They're in there. And that's been one of the big tasks of historians for the last two centuries. I mean, you mentioned the earlier debates over the identity of, of Jesus. I mean, that was one of the major questions that the early church faced, debated, navigated, culminating in some ways in the the Council of Nicaea in 325, the Council of Constantinople in 381. And this question of whether Jesus was divine, in what sense was Jesus divine, that was kind of a big fourth century debate. Uh, That was a big debate in the fourth century, but it's got a lot of precursors uh, earlier through the, the previous centuries. I mean, everyone agreed Jesus was divine. The question was, in what sense? Everyone. Been, hang, hang on. Uh, Everybody agreed? I think everyone agreed that he was oh, divine. Oh, Josephus surely didn't. 
Oh, well, I mean, well, Josephus... Oh, well, actually, Josephus may have considered him to be a miracle worker. He may have seen him as a divine agent or a divine servant, which in its own way could have been seen as a kind of type of divinity. Ah, so that's your point, that we need to be talking about types of divinity. Exactly. So there's different ways of being divine. For example, you could be divine like uh, the Roman god Jupiter or Greek god Zeus, Dios. Or you could be divine in the sense of a Roman emperor who at the end of his life, uh, he has been uh, declared a god by the Roman Senate. Or you could imagine someone like uh, Heracles or we'd say Hercules who's been wafted up to heaven. Or do you think of Jesus as a person in whom a divine power or an angel angel has somehow inhabited that person? Or is it the case that Jesus became divine at his resurrection? Before that, he was just a prophet, and then he was kind of divinized at his resurrection. In the early church, there were debates about in what sense or in what way was Jesus divine. And when you get to the fourth century, uh, the two main options that seems to have come down to a bit of a, in a battle royale was whether Jesus was divine as a kind of like super duper mega angel, or whether he was divine in the exact same way as God. God the Father. And what seems to have happened at those you know, big councils in the 4th century is the majority of the church seems to have sided with the idea, based on their own reading of scripture, their tradition, their history, their liturgies, that he's divine in the same sense as God the Father is divine. That is a fascinating account, Michael, but I know that not all scholars would you know, line up behind that that narration of how the question unfolded. Because there has been, hasn't there, especially in the last couple of decades, a whole body of work that's basically attempted to sketch out how the Jewish Jesus became the universal Christ, how, you know, a, a teacher and perhaps miracle worker became accepted as a God, as a, as a kind of later invention or um, development, if you, if you will, of what the followers of this person took his life to mean what they took him to be. That that's a kind of something that actually develops over many centuries rather than something that people registered early on, as I think you're suggesting. Yeah, I mean, there has been an angle in scholarship uh, where Jesus kind of evolves from being a mere Jewish prophet to becoming something of a Gentile God. Uh, but other scholars, and I'm not alone in this, I'm not some, you know, um, weird maverick coming out of left field. Uh, <laughs> out of Melbourne, have, I believe. <laughs> out of Melbourne, ma maverick Melbourne. Uh, others have pointed out, well, look, even in the Jewish world, there are specific ways of talking about God, about divine agents. There's all sorts of ways of, of characterizing a divine being as a way of understanding how God interacts in the world. And we could go through like the Dead Sea Scrolls. If you read some um, you know, texts about a particular character called Melchizedek, mm. Melchizedek seems to be something like a, a, an angel or a, or a messianic representative of this community out in the Dead Sea uh, who becomes described with divine language very similar to Israel's God. Or in the Dead Sea Scrolls, there's also something called the Self-Exaltation Hymn where you have a figure... A effectively boasting that they're destined to be exalted amongst the gods and next to the Lord God of Israel. So there is a very Jewish way of talking about figures other than God who are somehow heavenly or divine, you know, with divine in quotation marks, in a way that they don't think infringes on their devotion to the one God of Israel's covenant, temple, and worship, but is complementary to that. And that's, and that's a, a one question that's being raised. Is the worship of Jesus a compromise to Jewish monotheism, or is it possible as an expression within it? And so scholars make all these comparisons through texts and the Dead Sea Scrolls, things we know about worship and religion in the Greco-Roman world, and trying to figure out in what sense was Jesus worshipped, and why and how do they consider him divine? It's interesting you mention the Dead Sea Scrolls uncovered at Qumran in the 1940s, Michael, because as I understand it, that archaeological discovery and the huge um, impetus that it gave to scholarship of the first century and of, and of that Jewish world has led to, I guess, the foregrounding of the question of how Jewish was Jesus and the recovery in many ways of the understanding that, of course, Jesus was Jewish. And yet you're also referencing the, the Greco-Roman pantheon and Greco-Roman ideas of God. Is that a turn we're seeing in the scholarship now to pay more attention, if you like, to that, well, classical set of influences on, on this milieu? 
Well, ultimately, it has to be both because Jesus is Jewish. Uh, he grew up, you know, in as far as we know, in Galilee, speaking Aramaic. He's, he's fully part of Jewish life, history, climate, culture, and religion. At the same time, the Jewish world was part of the Eastern Mediterranean, which had been in varying degrees um, Hellenized ever since the conquests of Alexander the Great, and it was also fully embedded politically within the Roman Empire. So it's a it's a real cross section of influences. You've got obviously the the local Jewish influences, then you've got this slight overlay of Hellenistic culture, Greek culture, though it was a little bit uneven. It was probably more intense in the cities than in rural areas, but you're also then part of the Roman Empire. And what we want to do is we don't want to talk in too general like all Romans believe this or all Greeks believe this or all Jews believe this, but we've got to be discreet enough and recognize that each of these areas, these sort of different cultural influences or backgrounds, do exert some influence on the life and times of Jesus and the growth and development of the early churches. They spoke, taught, sung, worshipped, and praised Jesus. Hmm. The intersection of these worlds, I mean, I've always been fascinated by this. Actually, you can see it in the, the texts that have become part of the New Testament canon. There's a scene in the book of Acts, which kind of gives snapshots of the history of the early church, where Paul and Barnabas are in the city of Lystra, and they are reported, according to the text, to um, administer a kind of miraculous healing. And the crowd, according to the text, turn to them as if they're gods. They call they call them Zeus and Hermes and start to worship them. And, you know, Paul and Barnabas freak out. They're like, no, 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 we're not, we are not those guys. <laughs> we're people like you. It's the only time I think that anyone from that Greco-Roman pantheon of gods kind of becomes present in those early Christian texts. But it's, I guess it's a sign that there is a very concrete sign that there is an interpenetration of these movements and that, that we are talking about a very complex and layered cultural context. Yeah, that's exactly right. So, you know, when someone does a miracle, the, the first inclination of the observers is to think that, you know, either a, a great deity has metamorphosized in front of them or that deity is somehow providing them with power or energy to do this amazing deed. So, yeah, I mean, that's, that's a good example of what people's default setting was when they saw something spectacular or miraculous. And the New Testament as a whole is very much this intersection of Greek, Roman and Jewish worlds. I mean, I mean to begin with, uh, the New Testament is written in ancient Greek. It's, it's not written in Latin. It's not written in Aramaic. It's written in Greek, which was the lingua franca of the Eastern Mediterranean, but it's also about a Jewish prophet, a, a Jewish messianic figure called Jesus. And yet, when you read the infancy narratives, it's also very clear it's set in the context of the Roman Empire. I mean, they date things according to the lives of the Emperor Augustus and the Emperor Tiberius. I mean, that's, that's, so that's really good proof that we do have this very amazing and interesting intersection between Jewish, Greek and Roman cultures. I'd really like to hear from you what you think the early literary representations of Jesus, which were, of course, written by people who um, had decided to follow him, what you think they did borrow from the Greco-Roman ideas of divinity that were available to them in that layered kind of context? I think the number one thing that the Christians used in the sort of, you know, cultural repertoire around them is seeing that there's effectively two main types of divinity. There's what's called unbegotten or uncreated gods, and then there's what we might call begotten gods. I mean, or the way I the analogy I would use is there's two tiers of divinity. We might call it the House of Lords and the House of Commons. Mm -hmm. The House of Commons are for people who get elected or promoted into divinity, and then there's like the House of Lords where it's kind of the eternal always will be there kind of types of deity. So you've so got kind of Kronos as, you know, a creator god who generates Zeus and the other Olympians versus, say, Heracles, who's the hero figure who gets elevated to godlike status. Is that kind of an example? 
that would be a very good example. So the question is, which type of divinity is Jesus? And uh, sometimes it's not always clear. Sometimes uh, it could be a bit of both. I mean, in other places, in some literature, uh, it's very clear he's on the uncreated side. There's a chap called Ignatius of Antioch writing in the first quarter of the second century. He says Jesus is unbegotten in his divinity. I mean, that's like the House of Lords version of divinity or the Chronos version of divinity, and then he's begotten in his humanity. So he is a a genuine uh, creature, a human being. Uh, he's not simply a divine being who is metamorphosized into human form. So I mean that provided some of the language for which they could talk about Jesus and explain in what sense they thought he was a divine being. Isn't this just the early Christians trying to have their Christmas pudding and eat it too? Though I mean, it's double dipping of the first order, wouldn't you say? Oh, yeah, maybe even triple dipping if you've got Jewish, <laughs> Greek, and Roman. It's like trifle. You could have three-layered three uh, Christmas um, dessert. <laughs> so, yeah, but, but there's all sorts of influences because uh, the, the way I think about it, something amazing has happened. They've had this uh, amazing personality, this prophet, this person, this power in whom they sense uh, God's presence. And they're, they're trying to find the right language the right lexical key, if you like, to describe the experience and what they've seen and witnessed themselves. And that ultimately becomes the language that they used, although that language would then be debated uh, for something of the next four centuries. Well, Michael, that attention that you've paid to the Greco-Roman world in this latest book of yours, what has leaning into that particular set of cultural inheritance done to your view if you like, of, of Jesus as divine. I mean, I, I know you've been a theological lecturer for a long time. You count yourself a Christian, but what's become sharper or clearer to you from having paid attention to that Greco-Roman pantheon and the stories that derive from it? I think what you've got to understand is that Greco-Roman religion was about everyday experiences of life. There were gods for beehives, there were God for leather workers, there was gods for sex, there was gods of wine, there were gods for everything. It was a world saturated with gods. But it was also a kind of hierarchy. And uh, at the center of that hierarchy, at least from a, a certain perspective, you would find someone like the Roman emperor. The Roman emperor was either a living god or the son of a uh, elevated God. And I think a lot of the first Christians were saying, Jesus is divine in a way that rivals and represents something of an antithesis and answer to this intersection of religion, politics, power, and military might. And if you read something like uh, the Apocalypse of John, what we call the book of Revelation, for me, this, this is not an act of apocalyptic soap opera. Okay, trying to imagine the end of the world some thousands of years later. It uses layered language with metaphor piled upon symbol to say that our God, through his messianic son, is just as mighty and just as powerful and is more benevolent and kind of compassionate to the God's empire. And I think, I mean, the book of Revelation is amazing because it's one of those rare documents of antiquity not written by Roman elites. It's written by people from the perspective of what the Roman Empire looks like from those who have its sandal on their throat. And they look at Jesus and they see someone who can be a rival, a redeemer, and a rescuer from the brutality and the uh, malevolence of a large imperial power, which is why my favorite Christmas passage is nothing from the Gospels. It's Revelation 12. Uh, about which says? the says? Uh, that's, well, that's a story about a, a massive dragon that's basically waiting. <laughs> it's, it's basically the, the Nativity by Quentin Tarantino. There's a woman, <laughs> there's a woman in childbirth about, give, about to give birth, and there's a dragon there waiting to devour the baby that's expelled from the birth canal. But no sooner has the uh, baby been born, it's rushed away and preserved. Uh, the woman is also taken away and looked after, and eventually uh, the baby becomes king and he's able to defeat the dragon. I mean, that for me is what the Christmas story is about God becoming one of us to defeat the, the forces of oppression and evil in this world. And uh, that's something we celebrate in various hymns that may not be the most 
familiar Christmas imagery. Yeah, I've never imagery. seen it on a Christmas card, Michael. <laughs> yeah, I know. I mean, like, basically a woman in labour with, you know, legs spread with a dragon ready to eat the baby. That's not your average cr- Christmas pageant. Uh, but that's what it is. The birth of a son destined to destroy the dragon. Uh, destined and uh, divinely determined to bring peace and love and joy to the world. Uh, full of revolutionary potential. I can hear it in your voice, Michael. Thank you so much for, um, well, shifting perhaps some of our images of the infancy narratives, the story of the birth of Jesus. Uh, it's been very, very interesting uh, yes. to discuss let, let, with let's you. Man- Thank you so let's much. Mangers- Less mangers, more dragons. (laughs) I think they should print a T-shirt. Thank you very much, Dr. Michael Bird, for speaking to me this morning, and I hope you have a wonderful rest of the day. Well, thank you very much for having me, Meredith. Hope you enjoy the rest of the year and have a great Christmas yourself. Yeah, thank you so much. Dr. Michael Bird. He's off to Christmas lunch, perhaps in a less mangers, more dragons T-shirt. He's academic dean and lecturer in theology at Ridley College in Melbourne, And we've been talking about his new book from Baylor University Press, Jesus Among the Gods, Early Christology in the Greco-Roman World. On RN and Radio Australia, I'm Meredith Lake, here with you for a special broadcast this morning, brought to you by ABC Religion and Ethics. The South Pacific. The liquid continent is one of the most religious places on earth, and one of the largest non-government organisations is the Pacific Conference of Churches. It represents more than 40 denominations and national church councils that in turn represent about 80% of Pacific people across 19 different Pacific states and territories. James Barguan has been General Secretary of the PCC since 2018 leading its campaigns on everything from climate change to migrant worker welfare. Welcome to Gaddy Country. It's wonderful to be here in person with you, Padre James. I'd actually love to start with the water. I know you are a really keen stand-up paddleboarder. What do you love about that? Well, first, may I acknowledge the people of the land here. You know, as Pacific Islanders, we always acknowledge what we in Fiji call the Vanua, which is land and people. So, you know, acknowledging the the people of the land where we are gathered today, um, you know, elders, past, present and emerging. Um, and, um, you know, and recognizing that that, that is uh, something that we all do in our Pacific way to acknowledge that we all are part of the land and in many respects, the the ocean as well. Mm. Um, yeah, I I've always had a, a love for the ocean. I grew up in the Pacific, um, and um, you know, from a young age, the water has always been something that was fascinating for me. It was a place where, either in the ocean or in the swimming pool, I would find a lot of joy. Yeah. Um, I was um, disconnected from that for a number of years when I was doing my masters uh, in Seoul in South Korea, and uh, one day in the middle of winter. Uh, snow outside and I was going through depression because Mm. I was uh, inside. I couldn't find any sunlight, real sun. You know, we are Pacific people again, solar powered people, as I often (laughs) say. Um, And, um, you know, a friend of mine had shared a post uh, about our traditional voyaging canoe, um, the Utunialo, that was in Hawaii. And on that post, um, the uh, actor Pierce Brosnan, (laughs) who plays James Bond, uh, also living in Hawaii, uh, paddled up to them on a stand-up paddleboard. And, okay, I was interested in in Piers Brosnan, of course. I mean, when I was a small kid, I wanted to be James Bond, you know? (laughs) Who doesn't? (laughs) Um, But I was more interested in this thing that he was on, and it was a stand-up paddleboard. Um, So uh, a friend of mine uh, said, okay, when you get back, I'll help you get started on one. So he gave me a, a training board. Uh, off which I fell many times. Uh, when you paddleboard, you f- discover muscles in your feet that you never knew you had. Because I would say you've got you're a, a whole lower half. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but um, for me, being out on the water, and I go out very early in the mornings, um, you know, before the day gets started, uh, whether it's meetings, uh, Zooms, or whatever it is, uh, to be out on the water, uh, for me, that's the place where I like to have my quiet time. Um, usually when you're out at sea, there's no one there, so you can sing your hymns and your praise songs in uh, whatever sound of voice that you must, and God will love you for it, even if no one else will. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, just to be out in the water um, as the sun comes up, mm. 
as the new day, you feel the breeze, you reflect on, you know, what it must have been like at the dawn of creation, you know, when the Spirit of God hovered over the face of the waters. And if it's still not light yet, that, that feeling is just so amazing. Um, and then, you know, you're out in the ocean on a small board. Who are you in the midst of everything? Mm-hmm. If for me, given the role that I play uh, with the Pacific Conference of Churches uh, as, a, as a church leader in, in Fiji, it's such a humbling experience that you are just this tiny little thing in the middle of the ocean. And on the occasions we paddle out of the reef, through you know, out beyond the, the lagoons, out to the deep sea, you really are put into perspective of, of what life is about. And, um, you know, so being out with, in the ocean, uh, having to balance, which is an amazing metaphor for life mm. uh, when you have busy schedules these days, and just that ability to connect with God, connect with creation before we go and plug into the system and start doing the work that we have been called to do. It's just an amazing thing for me. Mm. Padre James, you've been in Australia recently for a series of events and summits, including the Pacific Church Leaders Development Conference, which was funded partly by Australia's National Council of Churches and by by DFAT. What was on the agenda? The Pacific Church Leaders Meeting um, was what gave birth to the real ecumenical movement in the Pacific 60 years ago. And since then, although it is a non-constituted body, it is a gathering um, of church leaders where uh, we bring church leaders together to reflect on what's happening in their communities, then engage on what are the key issues in the region, particularly around the areas of development, Also, there are some key justice issues that are involved as well. Migrant labor, you know, the conditions that people live in. How do we continue to affirm the culture and spirituality of Pacific people who no longer live in what is traditionally called the Pacific? And and this is further compounded by the impact of climate change, where we are already seeing in uh, some of our Pacific Island countries internal displacement. So even in Fiji, even in some of the bigger islands, we are now seeing internal displacement. And what will that look like internally, but also externally, Tuvalu, Kiribati, the cataract, and others? So this this idea of of continuing to engage, not just in the Pacific, but associated to the Pacific or expanding our understanding of Pacific is very important. The... Um, Pacific uh, Church Partnership Program, the more regional-based one, was announced by the former Prime Minister of Australia in 2018. And slowly, PCC has very cautiously engaged. We've had a very meaningful relationship slowly built with the Office of the Pacific. And and so now we, we have, um, you know, looked at some of the programs that we can have going forward. The mm. first of these was, the simplest one, was to bring church leaders to Australia um, to have our conference here and therefore use that as an opportunity to look at issues to of how the Pacific relates to Australia. Mm. And so some of the things that we discussed in the recent conference um, was... Um, labor mobility, the Pacific Australia Labor Mobility Scheme, the PALM scheme that's bringing seasonal workers and longer-term workers to uh, from the Pacific to Australia. Mm. Um, we discussed, of course, uh, development. Uh, what does development look like from a Pacific church perspective? Uh, and we have a, a vision and project around what's called the reweaving the ecological mat uh, concept. And then, of course, one of the ones that was really important was to talk about transnational crime and the rising methamphetamine issue in the Pacific. Um, so that was that was quite important. That That's a first engagement. And we had uh, representatives from DFAT present with us. And then following that was the Pacific Australia Emerging Leaders Summit, which took place in Canberra, where we had Pacific Island youth, uh, Pacific Diaspora youth, and very importantly, First Nations youth to gather together for two days of encounter and engagement and preparation, and then two days of engagement at Parliament with senators and members of Parliament um, on issues around the Pacific, self-determination, climate change, development, inclusivity. You know, this is an opportunity for us to have some real relationship building. And this is the key for Pacific people. It's Mm. not about how much money aid is given. It's about the relationship and that depth and honesty of of relationship. Mm. I understand that one of the outcomes of the Pacific Church Leaders 
conference was an intention for the churches to design programs supporting workers who are here in Australia on that Pacific Labor Mobility Scheme and support also their families. What's the goal of those programs? The Pacific Church leaders signed the Declaration on Modern Slavery um, in 2019. And since then, we have been really engaging um, with uh, partners here in Australia on the issue of modern slavery and how that connects to migrant labor. And um, speaking up actually also quite strongly on the impact of these schemes if they're not handled well. Um, And so our concerns tend to be around, um, while there are very important systems in place to protect the workers, um, understanding how Pacific people think, how they work, uh, how they process, and who they go to in times of trouble is also very important. Pacific people are people with a spiritual worldview. This is how, how we are shaped and how we are formed, that even if you give us information from a rights-based approach, we will process it from a spiritual worldview. That spiritual worldview is based on our indigenous knowledge and wisdom and our indigenous spirituality and also our Christian faith. And that's the, the lenses in which we look at things. And so in that context, how do we support them when they get into situations where they are uncomfortable with or may not be in their best interests? So often what we find is that um, the pre-departure briefing is often very rushed and very quick and is done at a level where perhaps makes sense here in Australia, but not so much in the Pacific. So they're given these numbers to call, this website to check out, uh, and all those sorts of things if you have problems. But in our Pacific, that's not how we deal. When we have a problem, we go to someone that we know. A person. Right? Yeah, we go to a person, and the trust is very important. The Mm. relationship is very important. And this is something that a kind of more bureaucratic, perhaps Western uh, framework of development overlooks or or doesn't quite grasp. Is, Is that what you're saying, that this is something that churches are perhaps best place to take up. Absolutely. Um, but why? Well, I think because, as I said earlier, we, 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 we speak to the understanding of the communities mm-hmm. and we are naturally placed in that position. When there is a problem in a family, they go to their pastor first. They go to their church leader first. That, of course, places a lot of responsibility on churches and church leaders to be able to engage in, in issues, whether it's domestic violence and child protection, to issues around development and what, what view can a church leader offer. And so we need to, on one side, from our side, we're making sure that our theological training and education helps our church leaders address those things. You know, I mean, even if you look at uh, our sports teams, mm-hmm. we don't have sports psychologists. You'll have a chaplain. Uh-huh. Right, you'll have someone in there who leads the devotion and the worship, and instead of a team psych uh, session, they'll have a prayer and a se- and a, you know and songs and devotion before the game and after the game. You see it on the field. That just shows the depth of spirituality and where their focus is and where their what their worldview is. And so, in that sense, we have that responsibility. Hmm. And the churches already have a strong sense of trust relationship with these people. So. It's the work we do back home with families who are left behind, but also to support our churches in Australia to provide that pastoral support and how best to culturally do that. Mm-hmm. So I think that's something that we can play an important role in. Um, and we look forward to, to working with the Australian government, with the Palm Scheme and others on, on taking this further. Mm. Padre James, the Christmas season is is upon us. Given the enormous range of relationships that you maintain, the campaigns and causes that you advocate for, for this whole region. I wonder what's on your mind as perhaps you get to pause and reflect on that core Christian story of the birth of Christ. We um, have been journeying through the season of Advent. Advent is about preparation. Preparation for incarnation. What does it mean that the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. What does that mean for us in the 21st century, in the um, end of the second decade now, moving into the third decade of the 21st century? What does that mean for us in the context of the climate emergency, in the context of wars still taking place around our world? 
you know, the challenges that we face. What does it mean? What does incarnation mean? What does it mean to embody, as Christians, the body of Christ, to embody Christ in the world today? Um, in the Pacific, Christmas is not just about presents. In fact, it's about worship. You know, it's church first. Mm. And many of us will, will have Christmas programs. Uh, if you're in an ecumenical family like mine, we have uh, a Christmas Eve mass with my wife, who's Catholic. Or maybe we'll go to a, an early morning service with my Anglican children. And then I'm preaching at a 10 <laughs> o'clock service for Christmas. So it's going to be worship first and then family. Um, and so, how do we how do we use these opportunities of Christmas? And I know it's it's in here in the southern hemisphere. It's the it's the holiday season. So we all get into holidays. We go away. We do stuff. But do we actually have a moment to pause and remember that Christmas was the most humble thing that ever happened? Right, uh, the Christ child laid in a manger. That the first space that he had, his first night, his first moments of life were with animals, with creation. And that's something important, that before the shepherds came, before, you know, according to the tradition, the wise men came or the magi came, it was, it was creation that was with him. It was the animals. And how do we th reflect on that? Uh, at PCC, we've, uh, we decided this year to have our own nativity scene. We worked with some of our friends who collect um, uh, plastic waste in the ocean. So the paddlers, um, there's, a, there's a group at the University of the South Pacific um, and others that do work on Pacific and on, on ocean litter. So we've been collecting and we decided to make all the nativity scene uh, objects out of recycled waste and plastic. So we've launched this beautiful nativity scene or looks for us who made it, it's beautiful enough, but it's just a reminder of the amount of waste that takes place around Christmas, you know. And in a time where it was about the most humble, the most vulnerable situation you could experience, let's remember that in the midst of our Christmas excess. You know, we will gather, we will sing, we will reflect on joy to the earth uh, and what that means. Well, Padre James, I hope you get to... Head out on the board, perhaps even on Christmas morning, but it's been a huge pleasure to be in conversation with you. Thank you so much. It's been an absolute honour. Thank you for the opportunity. The Reverend James Bhagwan, General Secretary of the Pacific Conference of Churches, which is the peak ecumenical body in the liquid continent. Padre James is also an ordained minister in the Methodist Church of Fiji. And you can hear more from him when he joins me for a special Christmas edition of my regular program, Soul Search. We'll be talking more about his love for the ocean and his personal journey of faith and activism. We'll also be joined by a young Papuan theologian, Maria Comboy, as we explore Christmas and its message of peace and what that might mean in the Pacific. I'd love to have your company for Soul Search too. You can listen anytime with the ABC Listen app. For now, though, it's time for me to keep going. I hope you have a terrific rest of the day, whatever that might involve for you. Merry Christmas to all who celebrate and peace to all in this corner of the universe. I'm Meredith Lake.